Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. I can't actually see you anymore, but I welcome you, and I note how many of you are here tonight. I'm delighted you could make it. In uh, commencing this evening, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respect to the traditional owners and custodians of this land, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. And uh, I should introduce myself, too. My name is Mark Ledbury. I'm the uh, newish uh, director of the Power Institute. The Power Institute, created by the generosity of John Wardell Power, is charged with bringing contemporary ideas about visual art to Australia. I'm also representing here my colleagues at Sydney Ideas, charged with bringing ideas to Sydney. And uh, especially I'd like to thank uh, Meredith Hall, who's done so much to make this uh, event happen. But I must also acknowledge the help and support of Jill Bennett, Margaret Farmer, and all at the National Institute for Experimental Art at the University of New South Wales and the College of Fine Art at the University of New South Wales, and Chris McAuliffe and the In Potter uh, Museum of Art, the Australia Council, the University of Melbourne, for their support in bringing Professor Clark to Australia. And if that long list tells you something, it is just how many institutions across Australia want to hear what Professor Clark has to say. But perhaps before I try to encapsulate uh, briefly, I promise, um, T.J. Clarke's extraordinary career, I should start with Picasso, because at this very moment, the University of Sydney's Vice-Chancellor and others are in London for the sale of the Picasso recently donated to the university on condition that it be sold. And we, of course, wish the university a successful outcome, an old-fashioned bidding war, and a nice, juicy price. But in a sense, this is how we've seen Picasso in our newspapers, in our media in these last few years, erotic adventures and high auction prices, the trophy Picasso, the intimate Picasso of sex and money, in other words. But tonight's Picasso, the Picasso of Guernica, and to an extent the Picasso of T.J. Clarke, is the Picasso of violence, of perplexing and problematic modernity, the social Picasso, the Picasso whose echoes still resound publicly as we contemplate terror, fear, and struggle. Of course, as Professor Clark will no doubt explore tonight, the public and the private are never as stable and extricable as my crude binary might imply. Indeed, perhaps no art historian of our generation has explored more polemically or poetically the problem of that relationship, of the public, a constant in his meditation on modern art from his groundbreaking image of the people, Gustave Courbet and the 1848 revolution in 1973, in which he urged us, if you remember, to stop thinking in terms of the public as an identifiable thing whose needs the artist notes, satisfies, or rejects. The public, he said, is a prescience or a fantasy within the work and within the process of its production. In 1984, Clark published The Painting of Modern Life, Paris and the Art of Manet and His Followers, a book whose impact on teaching and research has been enormous. Its particular combination of acute historical and political sensibility, provocation, and detailed visual and textual analysis excited a whole generation of students to pursue an engaged and vivid history of art and to think long and hard about what modernism was in its pained and strained relation to modernity. That long and hard thinking on Professor Clark's part reached another crescendo with the publication of Farewell to an Idea, Episodes from a History of Modernism, 1999, whose probing of modernism spanned a longer period this time, retaining, though, its acute eye for tension and difficulty, concentrating on moments of high stakes and high tension between artwork and political conditions, from Jacques-Louis David in the bloodiest moments of the French Revolution to Pollock in post-war America. That book, like his others, was characterized by an intensity of engagement with individual artworks, and that intensity of looking became the subject, as well as the modus operandi, of his most recent book, The Sight of Death, published in 2006, a wonderful and challenging chronicle of repeated visits to look and look and look again at a pair of Poussin paintings 
a book which asks us to think about what looking means, looking expertly or innocently. And of course, that remains a crucial question for anyone concerned about art, the visual, or its complexity. Along the way, Clark has become a reference point, both for his many students, he taught at the universities of Essex, UCLA, Leeds, Harvard, but is probably most deeply associated with the University of California, Berkeley, where he spent an illustrious 22-year career making Berkeley, I think, the place to be for a complex and challenging art history, setting an intellectual agenda, and forming generations of students who described him in a recent tribute as one of the kindest, most caring, and most giving advisors, and one of the most compelling writers and brilliant minds on the planet. When he retired in the spring of last year, Berkeley's loss was Europe, London, and poetry's gain, and the man whose concern with lyric has always been with him has relocated to London, publishing poetry, casting his analytical and poetic eyes over current exhibitions for the London Review of Books, as well as teaching at the University of York. Of course, Professor Clark has had his detractors, whose arguments might, I somewhat facetiously, be summarized in the words of Monty Python's postmodern peasant in Holy Grail. There you go, bringing politics into it again. But it is precisely that engagement with the complex social and aesthetic conundrums that makes his work so exciting and enduring. I am sure we'll be hearing more of, that in, of, of the tussle of public and private, of politics and intimacy, in tonight's lecture on Picasso's Guernica, which emerges from his invitation to give the Andrew W. Mellon lectures at the National Gallery of Art, but which is part of an ongoing and eagerly awaited book project on Picasso, based loosely on those lectures. His lecture tonight is entitled, Looking Again at Picasso's Guernica. Please join me in welcoming T.J. Clark. Uh, a text. Good, I think I'm set. Um, I first of all want to say thank you to Mark for, you know, an extraordinarily generous and thoughtful introduction. And uh, also to, you know, it really is a great honor to do this. Um, and I'm very grateful to the Power Institute and to the University of New South Wales for um, setting this up and, uh, you know, making it happen, and uh, to Mark uh, for his uh, patience through the past weeks, and to Chris McAuliffe in Melbourne, who sort of initiated, really, the process of this visit. Uh, this is a lecture about Guernica, about a history painting that, for some reason, refuses to die. I start on the left, where well, you've been looking at it for some time, with a photo of the, the then US ambassador to the United Nations, John Negroponte, mugging for the camera in early 2001, with behind him the now notorious tapestry version of Guernica hung in the anteroom to the Security Council. Negroponte was fresh in 2001 from service as ambassador to Honduras, that is, as commander-in-chief of the Contra War against the Sandinistas in the nation next door. And it seems there was no perceived dissonance at this point between Picasso's picture of terrorized civilians and the fresh faces of those arranging their death. Things, as you probably know, were to change. 
Guernica came down from the wall. Well, it didn't quite literally come down from the wall, but it was covered over with Velcro, you remember, at US insistence. On the right is a participant snapshot of a demonstration in London in 2004. It's one of hundreds, maybe thousands, of such reappearances of the painting over the past six, seven years. Here are two more extraordinary ones, I think. Um, up above, uh, 2004, just uh, a year after the invasion of Iraq, um, a demonstration just right out in, in Lafayetteville um, in North Carolina, just outside Fort Bragg. I think that must be uh, behind that kind of uh, street theater. Uh, Guernica, it must actually be a kind of parachute jumping uh, trainee tower. And down below, as being very politically even-handed here, um, this is a demonstration against uh, uh, in Calcutta in 2007 against uh, violence uh, orchestrated by the uh, Communist Party Marxist of um, uh, of West Bengal uh, against um, their opponents in Nandigram. I could duplicate these hundreds of times over. Extraordinary way in which uh, Guernica has sort of come back to life as part of, part of politics um, in the last years. Well, I'm not going to talk directly about the role of Picasso's painting since the US-UK invasion of the Middle East, but in a sense, everything I go on to say is shadowed by it. For how did it happen, this is my lecture's basic question, that a painting of the Spanish Civil War came to emblematize state violence in the way these photographs suggest. What was it about Guernica that went on and goes on providing a usable, seemingly even a necessary form for depicting total war? Already in 1937, the size and materials and ambition of a history painting like Guernica were anachronistic. The idea that the whole shape and temper of a new historical moment could or should be epitomized, monumentalized in oil on canvas was increasingly hard to believe. The general surrounding of Guernica in the Spanish pavilion spelt that out. Film uh, on the left here, the uh, a part of the outside of the building, wrapped around by uh, photomontage, and inside um, a precious photographic document, of, unfortunately, of sort of photomontages by Renau that have uh, disappeared. Film and photomontage ruled in the pavilion. In a sense, Picasso's painting in the anteroom was only there as a token of the artist's support, the artist's stature, Picasso's belonging to the great tradition. We shall see how deeply conscious the artist was of the pastness, the pathos of the game he was playing in 1937. But the pastness seems to have been what turned and goes on turning the painting toward the future. That's the paradox that needs explaining. 
My approach will be limited. I'm, I, I shan't pretend to give an account of the painting and its circumstances as a whole. A single lecture can't hope to do that. But rather to think again about the mural formally with questions of pictorial structure in mind. Questions concerning the picture's space, above all. Its treatment of outside and inside, distance and proximity, grounding and groundlessness. These aspects of Guernica demand our attention, I'm going to argue, because in them and through them, Picasso worked his way towards a sense of the truth of what he was depicting. Space was the form truth took for him as a painter. My reasons for saying this I can't defend at length here, but in essence the case is simple. Picasso was a destroyer. It's obvious that his art dispensed with many of the tests of visual resemblance previous picturing had taken for granted. But this work of doubting and undoing left him, I think, with one ineluctable test of adequacy in art. The truth of a depiction, its ability to present a certain aspect of the world in a way that would strike the viewer as apposite and faithful, productive of real knowledge, was inseparable from its spatiality. If a scene's distinctive spatial character could be given form on canvas and the distortions and omissions of particulars be seen in the end to derive from or contribute to that character, then the, the depiction would have made its claim to be not just ingenious or persuasive or even beautiful, but to have told the truth. In the case of bread and fruit dish here, for example, it seems that the picture is feeling its way towards a sense that sometimes, maybe splendidly, maybe ominously, the world of familiar things can take on the look of absolute permanence. Our possessions look back at us with an ancient Egyptian implacability. Symmetry and rigidity rule. Of course, this is only one among many possible modes in which space can be totalized by human subjects. But a picture, this is the point, should drive towards the mode that inheres in the object world it sees or imagines. It should end with the mode in its grasp. Picasso, for me, is a history painter. My assumption about him is the one most of us sure, uh, share, surely, that the last hundred years, in their horror and dislocation, shaped and informed his whole worldview. But for the most part, they did so, I think, on a structural level. The epoch appeared in Picasso in the guise of a form of life, a shape of understanding, coming to an end. My phrase for all this in the wider field of Picasso's painting is the end of room space. The end of room space is what this art is about. By room space, I mean simply a feeling for and a confidence in a world defined by four walls with laid out before us a nearby, commonplace, manipulable world of things. In the background may be a window or a balcony, 
But here up front where we are, a floor, a table, a guitar, a fireplace, wallpaper. This is one of the great sort of restatements of his whole view of the world from 1924. Big, big still life in the Guggenheim. This is a large topic, and I can't explore it here. I mean, the, 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 the basic structure of Picasso's worldview. But in order to understand the true difficulty of the task he took on in Guernica, I have to say just a little more about it. I want to insist here at the start on Cubism's commitment to room space, to a space of limits and corners and familiarity. Let me show you two of the triumphs of 1914 and 1916 toward the end of high cubism. Picasso's portrait of a young girl here on the left and man in front of a fireplace on the right. And let me ask you to look past the spellbinding painterly detail here to the picture's structure, their view of how the world presents itself to us and acquires humanity. I believe that these paintings wish, above all, to convince us, as Western painting has done so often and so persuasively, that the world is material through and through, and that that mere materiality is more than enough. It's what makes for the human comedy. For a painter like Picasso, that comedy's organizing principle is space. And space is only made real in a painting, only truly materialized, if it's contained and solidified. That means that the world in cubism is usually not far away, and most often smaller than us, or maybe just the same size. The young girl on the left here in her green room is cozy. Her world is a set of instruments, toys, utensils, asking us to reach out and take them. It is property. Bohemians, like Picasso, early in his life, tend to live in places where the property is deteriorating. The wallpaper is old-fashioned and peeling, the armchair broken, the music nostalgic, the frame on the mirror a fright. But it doesn't matter. The world for the bourgeois is a room. Rooms, interiors, furnishings, covers, cur curlicues are the individual made manifest. And no style besides cubism, in my view, has ever dwelt so profoundly in this space of possession and manipulation. The room was its premise, its model of beauty and subjectivity. What happens then when room space dies? In a sense, of course, that was always Cubism's question. I'm not meaning to suggest that because the style, in my view, lived instinctively in the 19th century, it didn't realize that that century's shaping structures were in the process of dying. Cubism is full of a sense of an ending. Even the playfulness of portrait of a young girl is inseparable from a sense of loss. But what happens when loss and dying are no longer implications, metaphors, but plain fact? Guernica is a painting in oil on canvas. 
Here it is in the great uh, photograph taken in 1937 by the architect Sert of it in situ. It measures 139 inches by 307, 25 and a half feet long that is, and more than 11 and a half feet high. It was, as you know, shown first in July 37 in the entrance hall of the Spanish Republic's pavilion. Out past the steel pillars of the inner courtyard was a cinema under a flimsy ceiling showing films of the Civil War. Luis Buñuel was in charge. It is a picture of an air raid. On the 26th of April 1937, in the 10th month of the Spanish Civil War, the ancient town of Guernica, for centuries the focus of Basque national identity, had been attacked by a squadron of Luftwaffe bombers supplemented by a handful of planes provided by Mussolini. The aim was to bomb and burn the city center in its entirety. It was the Luftwaffe's chance to see what the new incendiary explosives were capable of and to judge how long it would take to turn a town into an ash heap and what the effect of so doing would be on civilian morale. That last euphemism becomes the currency of cabinet rooms. In this sense, Guernica was inaugural. It ushered in the last centuries and our centuries war of terror, terror largely administered by the state in which tens of millions would die. Picasso made his first sketches towards a picture of the bombing on May Day in Paris, only five days after the raid. He appears to have begun work on the canvas itself about 10 days later. The first photograph that his companion Dora Maar took of the work in progress is dated, dated 11th of May. We can be fairly sure from internal evidence that the painting reached its final form on the 4th of June, or very soon after. From first sketch then to finished painting, Picasso took just over five weeks, and from the moment he began work on the full-size canvas, perhaps 26 days. The weeks were some of the worst of the century. Franco's forces moved north and east on a broad front, and the Republic began to devour its own entrails. From the 3rd to the 8th of May in Barcelona, just as the painting was underway, the Communist Party struck militarily against the supporters of PUM, the independent Marxist party, and CNT, the anarchist trade union. 500 people died in house-to-house -house fighting. PUM was outlawed by the Republic on the 16th of June. The party's imprisoned leader, Andres Nin, was murdered by Stalinist agents five days later Largo Caballero was forced from the premiership. Naturally, Picasso's circle of friends, many, many of which are, you know, hyper-political animals, was split by this moment of agony. Some, like Eloire and Aragon, shrugged off the Moscow trials, whose theater of lies had poisoned the opening months of the same year. Others, like Breton, 
took the trials for a new inquisition and would never forgive Picasso for his later groveling to the great leader. This is him in the late 50s doing his bit as a party, as a card-carrying uh, member of the PCF, miserable Stalinist organization that it was. He's, uh, he's at an exhibition in Italy. Dora Maar's politics were leftist and anti-Stalinist. One of her previous lovers, Boris Souvarine, lives in history as the first of Stalin's real, meaning nauseated, biographers. We know that Picasso was in contact with left-wing and anarchist friends in Catalonia. News reached him almost certainly of what was happening on the Barcelona streets. Georges Bataille seems to have been one main conduit. The great barn of a room in which Guernica was stretched and painted, here's Picasso uh, in front of the canvas, took up the top floor of a building in which, so Picasso seems to have been believed, the action of Balzac's great short story, Le Chef d'Oeuvre Inconnu, took place. It wasn't true, actually, but still, he believed it, and it was a resonance uh, Picasso treasured. But Dora Maar, who found the place for him, knew of it because it had been used as the meeting place for a group called Contre-Attaque, of which he had been a member. Whose attack was the one to be countered is a question that preoccupied the group. Breton, as usual, was ready with an answer. Our aim, he told Le Figaro, was, I quote, to maintain the revolutionary activity that had been betrayed by Moscow. Don't imagine that any of this, this familiar farce and tragedy of the left in the 20th century, was lost on Picasso as he brought his painting into being. But the dates I've already given you put context in perspective. Guernica was planned and painted in the space of five weeks. It was an astounding feat of concentration. All its politics, all its response to fascism and communism and the new face of war was in the picture. Guernica, to state it again, is 25 and a half feet long and a little over 11 and a half feet high. This is immensely bigger than any painting designed for a wall that Picasso had done previously. There were, of course, one or two um, theater uh, front curtains, right? Parade, of course, and Mercure. But that's a, that's a different kind of animal, immensely different. I think that from Picasso's point of view, the sheer height of the painting, it could just be wedged, perhaps tilted slightly forward under the beams of the Contre-Attaque assembly room. The height may have been even more of a challenge to his established ways of looking than the panoramic width. Painters of murals are obliged to be pragmatic about the kind of sewing together of part and whole that is possible in a picture 25 feet long. Some viewers will find the pragmatism, the casual hierarchy of episodes here, unsatisfying. Guernica has always had its critics on those and other grounds. 
if I don't go along with them in the end, it's because I think that Picasso so completely solved the problem that for him was much more important, that of the painting's height and ground plane. Eleven and a half, there he is, sort of, you can just see him right down, down there, at, absolutely at ground level. Um, and the sheer height of the, uh, the painting is sort of dramatically indicated. Eleven and a half feet is a true change of world for Picasso. It puts the top of the painting, the ceiling, the skyline, the felt ability of the depiction to contain space, even where it threatens to slide off into infinity. It puts all that out of reach. And this is dangerous. If a painting, even a large painting, loses hold of its upper edge, if the top boundary of the depiction is not every bit as present and determinate a fact of viewing as the line along the depiction's floor, for Picasso, it loses hold of everything. Space has slipped through its grasp. And therefore, here's my core proposition, really. Therefore, so may a felt a set of felt equivalents for the things, the bodies, the agonies that the space contains. I think, as I say, so in other words, without firmly grasped, completely grasped space, everything will go limp or fluid or, uh, or implausible. Space is the key. I think, as I say, that eventually Picasso solved the problem. He found ways to make the painting's height work for him. Guernica, to put my overall argument boldly, is a picture that finally manages to make its giant size. A giant being always essentially tall with all of its other dimensions following from that. Work to confirm a wholly earthbound and essentially modest view of life. My finally manage it, manages is not just a flourish. True solutions, we'll see, came late. I'll proceed chronologically. We know that when Picasso was visited by the Republican delegates in early 1937, he told them that he didn't know whether he was capable of the sort of picture they wanted. For a while in the spring, he seems to have been in denial, half wishing the commission would go away. But when the subject of Guernica, the bombing, seized him, he knew, this is my intuition, but surely a common sense one, that it came with political imperatives attached. Firstly, and most deeply, the bombing would have to be pictured as happening in public. It would have to be shown to distort and in a sense to isolate specific individuals, isolating them in just the way that terror is meant to, but nonetheless to do so in a space that was somehow shared among a citizenry, held in common. Privacy had been torn apart. The room must give way to the street. And second, whatever terrible damage was done to the women and animals in the picture, and the damage would have to be great, they were not to be robbed of their ordinary materiality. The damage should somehow confirm their creatureliness. 
However much the new time of death might disperse and madden them, they had to be present on the ground or in the window, actually falling and staring and screaming. Material things, real bodies. These are noble imperatives, and Guernica's eventual ability to respond to them is, I believe, what gives it continuing life. Of course, that's what somehow or other the powers that be can't stomach, right? That somehow or other this picture goes on saying to people, this is what bombing does. But here again is the nub of my argument. They are profoundly difficult self-instructions for the painter of bread and fruit dish. They lead him away from the space he naturally lives in, public and political. So Picasso's first attempts at imagining the scene suggest. I show a study done, it's quite a small study done in pencil on gesso, dated May the 1st. Public and political must mean happening outside. But is the outside a space Picasso can truly think pictorially? Jean-Vierre Laporte once asked Picasso why he never painted landscapes. I never saw any, he said. Je n'ai jamais rien vu. I've always lived inside myself. So is the outside, the question follows, a place Picasso can people? Fill with suffering creatures, that is, as opposed to whimsical players in a dreamscape. He tries again the following day using the same old master medium. He's trying to be serious, but the questions, I think, persist. I think the best way to come to an understanding of these first attempts is to look back for a moment to the three years immediately preceding Guernica, 1933 to 36. They're a complex and in many ways an unhappy time. They seem to end for much of 1936 in as much of a crisis of confidence in painting as Picasso was ever capable of. He painted almost nothing for months on end, engraved spasmodically, and poured his energies into a weird and, to my mind, pretty bad poetry. Guernica, among other things, is a convulsive awakening from this previous trance. There are many facets to the unhappiness, but I seize on one that connects with my story. In the mid-1930s, Picasso began to make the outside world his own. Sometimes it was the open space of the bullring, and sometimes, as here, a terrain vague of myth. The beasts are provided with a landscape setting. They walk the seashore or circle the walls of Troy. And all of this, I should declare my hand as a critic, is accompanied, in my view, by a massive drop in aesthetic temperature. If what Picasso is trying for, again here, is a kind of classicism, then the new version only goes to confirm the true seriousness, the massive ambition of the classicism of the 1920s, which had gone on fighting for an epic space made out of Cubist materials. This is the great Pipes of Pan of 23. 
In the 1930s, in my view, the fight is over. A token exterior has won. Things are more complicated than this, of course. Picasso is never dismissible. There are real achievements in these years, real imaginings of space even, but the question to ask with Guernica in mind is achievements of what kind? Here then is a painting I take to be one of the best Picasso did at this moment, dated March 1936. It is in pen, watercolor, and a single strip of pasted newsprint across the middle. And it's small, just over 13 inches by 20. Therefore, on one level, of course, the comparison with Guernica is factitious. But all the same, I'm going to make it, because structurally, spatially, it is so informative. Commentators on Guernica often make the point, sometimes disapprovingly, that the mural makes use of many of Picasso's stock properties. It smells of the bullring. Its women and bits and pieces of warriors have migrated from the beach or the studio. The point is obvious, and the little watercolor we're looking at confirms it. So many of the elements of Guernica are already there in the watercolor. The resemblances are uncanny on one level. A dark house to the right with sun or fire glowing through its windows. A chopped off head of a man a bearded hero, maybe a giant, on the ground, nestling in the grass there, sort of bottom, center, right. What appears to be a source of light in the sky, seemingly held by hand, with long streaks of ink tracing its beams across the picture plane. And an agonized figure at the center, half human, but with the head of a horse or a monster, maybe crucified, maybe hung in a noose from a tree branch. The point is not just to enumerate the features that the painting shares or half shares with Guernica. It's to suggest how ordinary these features became for a while in Picasso's art. And above all, in what kind of outside world they existed. The little watercolor, like many other pictures Picasso did in 35-36, is a landscape, and the landscape is essentially weightless. The light shines through its ruined structures. The main figure is ghostly and transparent. The tree mimes horror. The ladder leans whimsically against the wall. It's a space of fantasy, a free association of elements, a surrealist lantern slide. So the question follows, if this is the kind of exterior that seems to go naturally in Picasso's case with fire and agony and dismemberment, and they're all there here, then how on earth could those modes of experience be put back into the world, given weight, made ordinary and substantial? Isn't the outside for Picasso always going to be like this, just a dreamscape. The imperative to make pain public, it follows, if that's taken to mean situating it in an outside of sorts, is for Picasso deeply at war with the imperative to make pain incarnate. 
This is the problem that preoccupies him, I think, for the next five weeks. The manufacture of Guernica turns on the devising of a space to contain the action that would not be this fairy tale edge of the city. What in the end replaces it in the final mural is hard to characterize. That's the point, for it cannot be room space exactly. I'm not going to tell you the story of an artist returning to the little world he knows and making his final masterpiece out of it. Certainly the space of Guernica has some of the character of a room. It is paved, maybe with tiles. It appears to open out left and right into an openness beyond itself. But at the two top corners, there seem to be lines in perspective fixing a room's top edges and sides. There's something like a light bulb in the ceiling or where a ceiling could be, even a few tentative beam lines. And Baldessari has suggested that as the painting proceeded under the rafters, and as Picasso digested the evidence of Dora Maar's tremendous photographs of it, which he would have seen, you see, sort of day by day, developed, the oil painting interjected, as it were, certain features of its actual surroundings. It became more like the space it was made in. This is clever, but I still think, well, yes and no. It may have taken on certain features of room space, but I don't think this means, particularly at actual size, when the top of the picture is almost out of reach visually, that the space in Guernica ended up looking contained and intimate in a cubist way. It's not a space into which the outside comes as a light does through a window in the way of Picasso's great still lives from the 1920s. The outside is there all right, but as inruption, instantaneity, horror. Somehow or other, the outside has to be made present in the picture as a proximity that is absolutely foreign to us, absolutely non-human. This is a huge reversal of the cubist intuition. No wonder it was a, such a struggle for Picasso to realize it. I leap forward. On the 9th of May, Picasso made his first attempt to sketch out the main lines of the mural to come, using roughly the format dictated by the wall in the pavilion. I mean, this uh, small, fairly small sketch is not quite as wide as... Uh, to its length, to its height, of course, as it needs to be, but it's, it's getting there. The sheet teems with ideas, but spatially, spatially, it hasn't come far from the pencil and gesso studies done a week before. The bull stands a little docilely in front of a shattered townscape, twin tiled roofs framing him right and left. The lamp bearer's house to the right is a doll's house miniature, and the town in general burns in a kind of middle distance behind a deep foreground of corpses. It wasn't till two days later, the 11th of May, that the first real breach with this edge of the city exterior 
occurred. And it happened typically for Picasso when the question of scale was faced head on, for real. The canvas was stretched, the attic cleared, work began. No more than a day or so later, Dora Maar took the first photo. It's stupendous, this first state of things. Clement Greenberg later went on record as thinking it much more successful, so far as one can tell from photographs, than any of the later stages it went through. He meant, as usual, to provoke, but one sees what he meant. I look at state one of Guernica and immediately think of the wonderful pen and watercolor drawing by Ang, self-portrait of the artist at work on his Romulus in Trinita dei Monti. Here are the two images on the same screen. And the comparison operates at several levels. Both documents we're looking at exult in the actual physical enormity of the task called history painting. And of course, Anger is so determined to show us his tininess, right, in comparison to what he was doing. And both record the moment, the essential shamanistic moment in the history painting tradition, as Frenchmen conceived it, at which, after the plotting and painstaking of the preliminary studies, the first linear form of the whole thing appeared, out of thin air, in the vast, empty rectangle. It's hugely important, I think, this decision of Picasso's to recapitulate the procedure of Agre and David and Jericho. Above all, to go back to the moment of pure line, depthless line at the beginning of things. Line, you will see immediately by contrast with the sketch of two days previously, only two days previously. Line puts the image up front on the picture plane and all but collapses the crowded middle ground. The lamp bearer leans out of the window now and comes straight past the women underneath. The bull spreads out laterally and loses his shading. One figure from among the tangle of fallen warriors reaches up, maybe rigid in a last spasm, and lays out his chest, his torso, his penis, both his legs, in strict parallel to the picture plane. It's as if the wild hindquarters of the horse in the study have migrated to the hero. Line drawing of this kind brings everything to the surface. That would be one way of putting it. Ang's ability to go on discovering and relishing this is what made him one of Picasso's main gods. But of course, the photograph shows it, line is also a kind of transparency. Space flows through it, unobstructed. It cannot make space materialize as the heavy, close thing Picasso most deeply felt it to be. The further making of Guernica, I think, was a sequence of attempts to solve this riddle. I mean, I suppose that's in a way why Greenberg didn't, doesn't like the further stages, right? Because he wants uh, unobstructed, transparent space there on the surface. The further making of Guernica, I think, was a sequence of attempts to solve this riddle. Could one have a space in painting that was full as opposed to empty? 
felt as a heavy, breathable, confining reality without a picture of Guernica's size becoming all obstruction, all detail, all brilliant bits and pieces. That was the question and not a rhetorical one. This lecture, to say it again, can't do its subject justice. There are, for a start, now known to be at least nine photos taken by Mar of Guernica in progress, plus a close-up of the horse's head early on, and three or four shots of Picasso at work, with the, Picasso, with the painting shown obliquely or in part. You've seen a couple of them. Any one of these photos deserves more attention than it's so far been given in the literature. A full account of state one, to return to it momentarily, would certainly have to go further with the Angre comparison. And that in turn, so that's the final form of the Romulus painting uh, that the drawing shows Angre at work on. And the Angre comparison in turn, since Angre usually appears in Picasso when sexuality is in question, would lead to the uniqueness in Picasso's work of this moment in state one of homoerotic male beauty. Seems to me strange that the uniqueness of this moment hasn't been more recognized. The turn of the hero's nakedness in state one into the picture plane is charged, I would say naive, in its equation of resistance with phallic perfection of form. Again, the comparison with the drawing from two days earlier is telling. It is one of Guernica's signal achievements, I want to suggest, to have death acted out by women and animals without the action partaking of the erotics of the bullring. Women just are the actors in Picasso's world, always. It may go on being a problem for us that what they perform a great deal of the time is sex and death. Women, he said on one occasion to Françoise Gillot, are machines à souffrir. We can take that aphorism as compassionate or gloating according to our preference. It's part of a longer and deeper debate with Gillot about the actual state of the war of the sexes. But for our purposes, what matters is how it plays out in Guernica. I think compassion rules. And Picasso knows full well, I think, that in order for it to do so, he must defuse, throw into reverse gear, his habitual association of violence with the sexual act. The way the mother with the dead baby is treated in the 9th of May study down below. She's the central figure in the drawing's right half. Here's a close-up. Is typical. Logically, the mother must be back in an undefined middle ground on the far side of the horse's splayed hindquarters. But visually, surely, one part of us registers the horse's haunches as belonging to her. And this conflation of horse and woman is, if you like, Picasso's normal imagining. State one of Guernica itself, two days later, seems to me a first attempt, as I say, a naive attempt, 
at expunging the normality by simply reversing the, the sexual signs. If the male hero could concentrate the erotic energy in his fist and chest, then maybe even the woman in flames over to the right could agonize without her agony being, as it so often is in Picasso, desirable. It's simple-minded with the simplicity of repression. But it goes to show, I hope, the erotic stakes in Guernica. And a full account of the picture's making would have to trace the way this first homoeroticism, this borrowing whole from Davidian theatre, shot through as it is always with homoerotic drama, was gradually worked out of the system. One great thing that had to go, of course, was the clenched fist. It grew bigger. It gathered itself a positively phallic halo of sunlight and harvest festival. It blew away. Francis Freshina has argued that one main reason it vanished was the state of things in Barcelona at the very moment Picasso was working, the blood of anarchists in the streets and the triumph of the party. The clenched fist, remember, was more and more specifically a Stalinist symbol in 1937. Francis may well be right. And of course, as Rudolf Arnheim long ago argued so eloquently, there are complex structural reasons why the picture space couldn't go on hanging so decisively from a center or unbroken spine. But part of the painting out, I'm suggesting, is, be is best understood as a kind of embarrassment on Picasso's part. State one had been too beautiful, too male, too Greek, it was transparent about too much. The erotics of Guernica, then, is one among several stories worth telling and still, I think, largely to be told. But my story is space, and even here I have to be selective. I'll jump to a moment quite close to the end. By the time Picasso was working on the picture as we see it here, probably two weeks or more into the process, maybe into the first days of June already, the basic tonal and spatial structure of the thing had been long decided. The painting was going to be organized around a repeated diagonal pattern of polarized lights and darks, a triangulation, one might say. Look, for instance, this is clearer in the finished painting, at the gray and white geometry emanating from the lamp, or even better, the deep black slashing across the doorframe underneath the lamp bearer, or the flames, the window, the strange ceiling light top right. Guernica's critics have always loathed this geometry. Its triangles are academic, they say. And I'm sure they're right, but the answer to them I think it's the answer Picasso was struggling for all through the last weeks. The answer was to engineer a kind of heavy, palpable activity in and around the geometry, on the surface, in the nearness of the foreground, an activity that would counterweigh the crispness of the lights and darks. And I think he did it. 
But I think it was hard. A lot depends on real size. Guernica suffers hugely, it's the price of fame, from being continually miniaturized and disembodied in the world of mechanical reproduction. You should try to build into your judgment of what I now say about its spatiality an awareness, a memory or imagining of what it's like to be in front of the picture itself. Remember that one sense of physical location in regard to the scene. And I mean by this, not one's measured height against it, but one's imaginative projection into its space is that it's hugely bigger than oneself that at most a viewer comes up to the horse's chest. And this gigantism is again of a new kind for Picasso. We are, to borrow a phrase from Michel Leris from the time, terre à terre with the giants here, on a level with them, looking up into a world that is, in one, in one sense, flimsy and vulnerable, the pinned paper feel of the horse's body is notorious, but at the same time, heavy, ordinary, standing on the same ground as ourselves. And of course, the artifact of the slide or the JPEG utterly travesties this physical relation. The best I can do is offer a photograph like this, <laughs> the elderly professor in front, you know, poking his nose into the picture, which is already t taken by a student of mine um, who took also the, some of the very best of the other pictures of Guernica you're, you're seeing. A photograph like this, which is already taken from quite far away, you notice, in no sense is it creating a false proximity to the picture to wage war with the textbook's false distance. Right? I mean, it is in one way true to the feeling of the scale of Guernica against oneself. I think it registers at least the kind, the conditions of seeing that Guernica intends. What can I say then about that kind? Well, at least this. First, we're certainly back in a world of nearness with everything pressed close to where we are. But this doesn't turn in the end on the making of an overall cubist container for the action. It doesn't turn on an outside-inside distinction. It's sufficiently obvious that Picasso decided finally to offer us bits and pieces of both. The skyline up top in Guernica changes constantly from ceiling to roofscape. This might be irritating a sign of the painter's inappropriate cubist cleverness, if it mattered. But in situated vision in front of the painting, I don't think it does. The upper part of the picture is accompaniment. It's not where space is in Guernica. Space is here, lower down, closer to us, in the weighted, grounded, bottom-heavy world of the giants. Space is a matter of silhouettes and painted cutouts, jockeying for attention with quite other kinds of extension in space. The horse's neck and jaws, for example, or the billow of the curtain as the lamp bearer pushes it aside, or the push, the flow, almost as if it's squeezed from a tube 
of the lamp bearer's face towards somewhere, again I say, right over our heads. It took some doing. Let me go back to the moment I promised to end with. Our best guess is that we are a week from the end here, at state six on top and state eight, just one before the end down below. One thing that has always fascinated commentators about these two states of the painting is that in them, Picasso appears to have stuck pieces of patterned, presumably colored paper onto Guernica's blacks, whites, and grays. It was more than a momentary whim. Both pieces of paper in state six, here it is, are applied to the woman stumbling across the foreground from the doorway at right. One of them is a loose patch of wallpaper. The other has been carefully cut to the shape of the woman's headscarf. Then there is a moment, seemingly a day or so, when the pieces disappear. And then they're stuck on again, placed just slightly differently, and two more pieces are added, a wallpaper strip over the grieving mother's dress towards the right, and a bizarre cutout, sorry, towards the left, okay, the grieving mother, famous figure, over towards the left, and a bizarre cutout right over um, to the right, again, of what looks like wallpaper, trimmed to the shape of the falling woman's lower regions. We're back in the world of cubism. It's as if Picasso suddenly felt that Picasso had to be put to the test of collage. And clearly, the pinned-on papers, though in the end Picasso discarded them, were what provoked the most obviously cubist feature of the work as we have it. There it is down below. The lines of black stippling, this is state nine, not quite the end, but almost. The lines of black stippling that um, all at once in June spread over more and more of the horse's body, turning it partly, as many people have said, into a kind of newsprint image of itself. I interpret the pinned papers thus, even so late in the day, with the ebb and flow of monochrome long established as the painting's matrix, Picasso looked to be uncertain about whether the light-dark geometry really made the picture happen on the surface, or enough on the surface, or whether it opened the illusion backward in perspective into too much space, sort of made it into a kind of Caravaggio. It's the problem of picturing, as far as Picasso is concerned, the problem of surface and depth, the priority modern painting gives to the one surface and the distrust it has of the other. The collage pieces are surface literalized, materialized. I don't believe Picasso ever seriously considered changing the picture's whole pictorial economy at the 11th hour, or even interjecting here and there a note of color within it. He was thinking, I believe, about what in painting kept surface present. Above all, about how much differentiation of surface texture, surface incident was needed to interrupt and flatten out the light-dark machine. 
He wanted proximity, but not intimacy. The look of things come out of the dark, with the dark clinging to them. In the end, he saw, commas of horsehair were enough. But this was because, in the meantime, he'd found a solution for the picture's most unresolved aspect up till then, its ground level, the nature of the contact between its actors and objects and the surface they stood on. Ground level is still radically underdetermined, you'll notice, in State 8. The broken shards of the warrior, the hooves of the horse, and the batayesque big toes of the woman lurching in through the door, they all fall into the bottom edge of the picture like so many weightless, unlocated floaters. Maybe Picasso had the idea at this stage that groundlessness, vertigo, was to be the painting's predominant note. Maybe the falling woman would dictate the whole plot of the picture. But in the end, she didn't. The change, when it comes, happens fast. Here's state nine again. This, to remind you, is the last of Doromar's photos taken a matter of hours before Picasso decides the painting is finished. And as soon as the surfaceness, which had been rediscovered in the collage pieces, begins to be put into the painting, comma by comma across the horse, spreading out across the horse's back and belly, as soon as that happens, the whole balance of space and ground in the foreground begins to shift. The horse's hooves have legs to attach to. The broken statue becomes three-dimensional. Cut-out surface is answered by hard ground level. A grid of tiling springs up, anchoring the picture's whole spatiality. Look what it does, for instance, to the long... This is rather hard to kind of get a hold of, but I think you can just about see it in this detail. Look at what it does to the long, hard-edged diagonal, like the bottom of a wall or even an upended door, that pushes back low down into space behind the stumbling woman, the horse's forehoof, and the warrior's broken sword. That diagonal line, as a basic structuring idea, had been there for days, maybe weeks. There it is, already in state six. It seems to arrive at the same time as the first uh, pasted papers. But it doesn't really operate on Guernica's foreground. It doesn't carve out sufficient space for the foreground actors to stand on until the grid is painted in. Then everything seems to harden and clarify. The curving gray shadow midway across the long wall snaps into visibility. The horse kneels heavily on the tiles. I like the photo Dora Maar took of Picasso squatting on the studio floor by his painting and pondering, well, of course, this is me wildly reading it now, pondering just what it would take to materialize the still abstract last inches of the illusion down there. In the end, the creatureliness came easily, almost naively. 
but only because he saw finally how surfaceness and groundedness could coexist. Forms spread out along the nearest possible front edge of the floor plane, as if no more than a few inches from us. Up above, bodies switch to and fro between paper thinness and stamping solidity. And the squares of the tiling are pushed back beyond the bodies, making them seem closer still. This is proximity in a word, but reinvented. It is flatness finding its feet. I began this lecture, and was at the end now, by saying that questions of space and habitation are bound up for Picasso with questions of truth. Not persuasiveness or brilliance or beauty, in my view, but good old-fashioned validity. Here at the end, I'm, I'll return to that. Obviously, truth in Picasso does not equal lifelikeness or verisimilitude in any familiar way. These are not paintings that wish to persuade us that the world on show is continuous with ours or even exactly equivalent to it. And yet the idea of world persists. And therefore, I argue, there is one thing that Picasso finds indispensable to any painting that counts, namely space. The making of an imaginatively habitable three dimensions, one having a specific character, offering itself as a surrounding. This is the great three dancers from 1925, which uh, famously Picasso remarked he preferred to Guernica. I said he thought it was more of a painting. Um, but I put it up there as the, the epitome of Picasso's sense of room space and action always taking place within the space it needs, the space that makes it real. One way of describing this constant in Picasso is to say that picturing for him is unthinkable if it does not aim at providing a space for being in, providing a room. And maybe even by adding a simple substantive to room here, right, a room is wrong. Because providing room, the sine qua known of the human, just is for Picasso providing a room a specific and familiar floor, wall, wainscot, window. Being for human beings, in Picasso's view, I think, has as its very precondition being in, reaching out really or imaginatively and feeling the shape and pressure of a known place. I hope that saying that, helps to bring the achievement of Guernica into focus. For supposing modernity were to come upon an instant, and this is a tragically, naively innocent Picasso from 1919. It is a Picasso, right? Window with aeroplane. Suppose modernity were to come upon an instant in which the whole imaginative structure of habitation, of being in, 
of shaping the world around an implicit model of room and window, of containing and belonging, of being inside or out. Supposing modernity came upon a moment in which all of that looked death in the face. Suppose the airplane banked in the sky like the one in North by Northwest and headed in our direction. And suppose this were more than a one-time occurrence. Suppose that in the bombing of Guernica, modernity in some sense encountered its future and saw in little a whole form of life collapsing, ceasing to exist as the determinant, dependable form of the human. How on earth was painting to represent such an ending without falling itself into a spatial rubble? maybe propped up or distracted from us by a conjurer's misdirection of attention by foreground melodrama. That was the problem. There will, I think, always be disagreement about whether Picasso found a solution. But what this lecture has meant to suggest, above all, is simply the nature of the task and how much the task for Picasso meant reinventing everything. That I can even claim that he rose to the challenge, that he found a way, rather at the last moment, to put his humans and animals on a ground, and one that was neither outside nor in, but truly the one becoming the other, a world in which women and beasts still fought for a footing just as everything dissolved. That I can claim this at all for the painting, this enormity and hope to persuade you is more than enough. you who need further persuasion, um, there's a chance uh, Professor Clark's been kindly said he will uh, answer some questions. We have a slightly um, a complex arrangement in order to do this. Um, so if you would like to uh, ask a question of um, TJ Clark, would you please approach one of the mics that is uh, halfway down one of the rows? I'm afraid this rather puts the spotlight on you, but we'd love you to do so, and I'm sure there'll be some... You, that you'll see that halfway down the rows here, there are... Um, there are two microphones. I'm afraid to say that rather uh, puts the kibosh on it for you up in the, uh, in the circle there. I'm sorry about that, unless you'd like to come down. But um, uh, if anyone would like to ask Tito Clark a question, we have a, a few minutes. And it would be great if you would. Don't all rush at once. There you are. <laughs> Here's, great. Here's someone. Yeah. Uh, hello. Hi. Should I switch this on? It's on, it it's on, on, it's on, it's on. Okay. Um, I had the uh, great pleasure of visiting in Madrid and seeing Guernica earlier in the year, and as someone who did not take art at school or university but has come to art rather late, I thought it was just magnificent, and so I've really enjoyed listening to your speech. My question um, is in particular thinking about the 9-11 attacks and the not so much the Iraq war and what happened after, but more about the day itself. 
Uh, I guess my question is, um, uh, Picasso's Guernica seems to speak to both sufferer and media consumer at the same time. Do you feel mm -hmm. there's anything much to say about how 9-11 as an event was something that seemed to strike a chord in people both who've suffered bombing or oppression and also are witnessing it yeah. but not experiencing yeah. it themselves? Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's spot on. Uh, it's, 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 you know, there actually have been some very powerful accounts of Guernica which put much more stress than I did on, um, on the fact that the horse ends as a sort of newsprint image of itself uh, on the fact of uh, black and white being photographic, uh, of, of um, the re a possible relationship between the painting and uh, photographic mediation. It wasn't much photographic mediation, but there were just one or two crucial photographs of, uh, of Guernica in the days afterwards. Um, uh, uh, and uh, Guernica, of course, was immediately overtaken by a propaganda war with the fascists claiming that they hadn't bombed it and it had actually been set fire to by uh, the Guernican communists in retreat, you know, and pillars of rectitude like T.S. Eliot inclined to believe that. And, you know, so, so in other words, this is already very much a, an, an event uh, which is being mediatized, right, and sort of swallowed by uh, this familiar battle of representations, battle of instant news representations. Uh, so I think that is there. I mean, the other, uh, the other thing to say is that um, remember that Guernica is surrounded by photomontage in the Spanish pavilion. So, yes, I, I, I mean, rather... I agree with all of that, and actually there are, you know, uh, art historians I, and critics I greatly respect who would, you know, who would say that's, that's the essence of Guernica, right? But it, in, to some extent I'm sort of trying to counter that and saying it's all there, but one wouldn't, Guernica wouldn't have its continuing political resonance if it didn't somehow or other manage to wrench material reality, the material reality of suffering out of that black and white virtual world. All right, but it, but, but it's, it is out of it. Yeah. I was just wondering whether you could comment on the little arrows that one sees, I don't remember in which state, Yeah. but how those contribute to what you're trying to say about the space. Yes, it's, they're sort of there, they're there. It's, um, maybe they're gonna be clearer if we go back to the whole thing. Let's see whether I can get there to a... Yeah, they're, they're, they're not, yeah, they're quite clear there, aren't they? Sort of there. Uh, I think, listen, they're absolutely baffling. <laughs> Um, and I think insofar as there are anything you can sort of make sense of, they seem to be, it seems to be the, um, 
almost like a cartoonish rendering of the broken spear point of the fallen hero statue. All right, I mean, you know, there's a lot to be said about this this hero, right? The hero loses his kind of phallic perfection and reality and becomes a sort of broken statue of himself. And he's uh, and the the horse is sort of pierced by uh, a, a spear, which might be a bomb, which might be a... So, um, I mean, it's also... So I think that on the level of, you know, sort of common sense, dramatic reality, it might have it's some kind of broken weapon. But of course, it's also, it's also spatially an arrow, which is sort of pointing you back into space, but sort of pointing you rather unconvincingly back into space, a sort of flat arrow, a flat orthogonal. I think it may, you know, it's one of Picasso's weird half uneasy, joke, half joking spatial plays, uh, which goes to sort of complicate the space at ground level. It's the best I can do. <laughs> Please. I have a question regarding Picasso's involvement in politics. He was um, a member of the um, Communist Party of, of France, um, something you briefly touched on. What was his involvement um, in that, and how, how prolific was his career in um, in representing, I guess, politics? Yes. Well, it all happens later. Remember, right? He, he's not a mem- He doesn't. He joins the party in '44, um, and that's a very different moment. Um, uh, the the Communist Party has gained immense prestige in France through its role in the resistance. It's slightly, it's slightly now. It, <laughs> there's a certain mythology surrounding its role in the resistance, and it, uh, you know, it was not the be-all and end-all of the resistance by any means, but it played an important role. Um, he. So it has, you know, it's, it's a very, very important player in this post-war world. Um, and for, you know, all kinds of reasons, which many of which, a lot of which of this state will, remains obscure. Exactly why he joined, what he thought he was doing by doing so, um, how serious he was. Um, it, it, it's a very complicated question. Um, but it, it, it's not an unserious commitment. Um, it, and in fact, there was a very good uh, exhibition a year ago in Liverpool, um, which gathered together, you know, a lot of his actually very astonishing quantity of um, down-home practical agitational material that he did, right? Scarves and uh, um, posters and so on. Um, so, but of course, knowing the rate Picasso did, right, it didn't necessarily occupy him all that long. He did a lot. Um, so the best I can do about this is, right, that, uh, look, for me, um, joining the French Communist Party um, in '44 is certainly comprehensible. Sticking with it through the 1950s is less comprehensible. 
Uh, it's a ghastly Stalinist outfit, right? You know, and he's, I mean, look, he's there. He doesn't leave the party uh, when Hungary happens, for instance. He doesn't leave uh, the, the party when, uh, the part, when the East German Communist Party slaughters um, the East German proletariat. Uh, so, the, you know, so it's a, it's a messy, questionable political commitment. Um, yeah, probably leave it there. Probably leave it there, yeah. Uh, you've described Guernica in terms of the history of uh, history painting, um, but some people have actually said that this is the last possible history painting that could be painted. Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, look, I, d I don't ever believe in the last possible. Um, but I did start begin by saying it's an anachronism. And he knew it was an anachronism when he did it. He knew that he was going to be surrounded by cinema, photo montage, very, you know, br brilliant documentary cinema orchestrated by Bunuel in the interior courtyard. The whole exterior wrapped round with excellent photo mural. Opposite the thing in the entranceway was a photo montage about Lorca and the assassination of Lorca by the fascists. Uh, Renau, brilliant photo montagist, uh, it, occupying key spaces. So he knew that this big monumental painting was a thing of the past. But you know, painting's always a thing of the past. Um, and, and, and to some extent, that's, you know, it all, already in the time of Manet, already in the time of Daguerre, right? You know, painting's always saying, well, of course, painting now is, uh, you know, there are other means of visual representation which have overtaken it. Um, of course, painting may come to an absolute end, but the, the paradox of painting is the extent to which over 150 years, almost 200 years, right, since the invention of photography, it's gone on being in this sort of strange dialogue with the, um, the more flexible and immediate and persuasive means of represent, visual representation existing all around it. All right, so it's a history painting. History painting is a sort of grotesque nonsense in 1937. But then, why is, why is the man in Calcutta and the man in London and the theater troupe in uh, Fort Bragg, why, why do they turn to Guernica as, um, as still a kind of usable form, right, in which to articulate outrage at uh, realpolitik, at shock and all? That's, that's, that's the question, I think. I've just got a quick question. Back to the painting itself. I haven't yeah. seen the original. Is, is the painting uh, uh, covered with paint entirely or are the, some areas uh, worked in pencil or whatever the underpainting no, is made No, it's completely, in? completely covered in paint. Uh, often quite thin, the paint, but uh, actually, you know, full, again, it's very, very... Uh, some of the details are good enough. They're just about as good as you'll ever get, actually. I mean, it's a shame about these lights. 
Couldn't we kill these lights for a moment so you can see it? <laughs> anyway, whatever. I mean, you can see it's full of life, this painting, right? It's full of painterliness, actually. So that's, again, an interesting way in which it refuses to apologize for its anachronistic paintedness. Can I go to this side uh, first and then? Do you think that Picasso's identification with Catalonian uh, cultural politics, as well as uh, the Basque's plight, mm. uh, helped fuel his desire for and his development of proximity rather than intimacy, mm. being and truth, in order to make their particular pain feel incarnate? Yeah. Yes, I think, uh, I think the Catalonian involvement was very, very important. Um, very, you know, ex ex extraordinarily so. I mean, obviously, he would, he's much, much more directly involved with Barcelona than with Guernica. Um, so, yeah, that's part of it. And, and that, of course, also would, would be why... Um, Think of him getting the news of what was actually happening in the Barcelona streets just right at the moment he's beginning this picture, right? I think the kind of, you know, ideological, intellectual, political tension and confusion of the moment would have been uh, enormous for him, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, could I uh, please engage for a minute with the, uh, your... your overarching thesis about space yeah. um, and light and the black and whiteness of the painting. Um, it's been great to have the opportunity to look at such an enormous, such enormous details which finally approximate the scale of the painting which we saw when you were standing next to it in the photograph. Yeah. And it seems to me the, the only parallel that I can remember are the giant um, Hellenistic sculptures for example, in friezes mm. from the Pergamon mm. altar or um, some of the big um, carved uh, sarcophagi of the battles of the Lapiths and the centaurs and so on. And, and so it seems to me I, I feel a sort of classical resonance and I feel a connection to the space uh, of, of high relief, not low relief, but yeah. high relief yeah. and, and black and white um, and pathos formulae, yeah. um, the, the hands gripping the swords. It's really all snapping jaws, uh, broken fingernails, brutish ankles. Yeah. And I only feel that kind of connection with the sort of classical world. Yeah. Um, no, I, uh, Roger, I don't uh, disagree with that at all. And I think, it, you know, again, this is, the, this is the extraordinary nature of this operation is that he... He manages to wrap so much into the in, into the process. I, you know, people have said this before, and absolutely rightly, that um, uh, the pictures pictures full of well, not full of, but it contains one or two absolutely direct quotes from sarcophagi. Right, that the the woman in flames, especially in the state she's in in state one. Not, not at the end, but the woman, you know, right at the right, sort of agonizing in flame, straight out of the great Basel uh, Medea, right, of, you know, the, the Medea, remember, enchanting 
um, enchanting Jason's wife and sort of, you know, with a flaming, burning. So, so it's, you know, the sarcophagi are part of it. Absolutely. And I think that the, that's one of the things that's happening in state one. Doing this Angresque line drawing is a sort of multiple homage to the classical, right? To Ang's classicism, to the Davidian tradition, to the sarcophagi tradition out of which they, you know, which, which, which they so revere. Thank you very much. Um, as a Steinberg, Leo Steinberg student, I've heard him talk about uh, Picasso a great deal, and it seems to me that in many ways a lot of what you're saying is sort of inheriting or following on from Leo, although I know I guess he would talk about bodies as much as space with yeah. Picasso. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about with the uh, State One was uh, the way in which you see the lines being set up the kind of working lines yeah. which uh, and whether yeah. you could talk about how that informs because to me it's very much part of you know the renaissance mural tradition yeah and you think of sinopia and you see you know them snapping the lines yeah. uh, although picasso has lots that are not vertical but i mean that the way that he's working it on the surface as well i just wondered if you could talk about how you see the kind of all that space coming out also of working on the surface yes. with those lines. Yes. This is state two, which oh, just... Oh, I beg your pardon. Sorry. No, no, this is state two. I just thought we'd go back. So, you know, and this is actually even more dramatic uh, illustration of what you're talking about because there are a few more of these, uh, uh, you know, like structural lines, really, spatial lines. And that, so I agree with you that it... it that right from... The, and so if we go back to... State one, there's, they're already there. Mm. Go back to state one, shall we? Yes. You know, they're already there, but they're, uh, they're, they're actually traced out even more firmly in the next day or so. And yes, they are they're working lines. And above all, they're trying to think about a spatial, an overall geometrical spatial structure into which this fantastic, line drawing of the body might, might in the end be organized. And it's very like, you know, the Renaissance process of fresco yeah. in the sense that you have your lines, but you then, when you actually paint, of course, you paint on top of them, yeah. but the memory of them is still there. Yeah, so. very much so. Yeah, and no, I agree with that. Um, I'd just like to quickly jump back to the first question. Um, I know that Walter Benjamin warned that the aestheticization of, sorry, the politicization of aesthetics um, and I was at a talk with Colin Powell whilst I was in high school and he said that as he was giving a press conference about um, either the first or second Gulf War, they covered the tapestry mm -hmm. um, in the UN centre of Guernica and yeah. I just wanted to ask um, what you thought of the political currency of Guernica today even though it's obviously something of the past. Yeah, well, that's what I started with. Sorry, I missed um, your first no, 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 that's, <laughs> that's Well, that's what I started with. I, showed, I actually showed um, the, the odious John Negroponte uh, mugging for the camera in front of the, uh, in front of the Guernica tapestry, um, which, you know, at that point he didn't think was a problem for him. Um, it, it's very interesting that it became such a problem for power to, to be seen in front of Guernica. Well, thank God. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that um, sort of 
makes this a very powerful image or does it just reconfirm yeah, the power of the image? That's, that's, that's what I've been trying to say. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Again, a brilliant, um, a brilliant study of this, this um, painting. The question I've got um, is in two parts. Um, many scholars have looked at this work as um, um, a, uh, a work based on Picasso not only using his own set of private symbols but a long set of classical symbols and yeah. contemporary political symbols. Yeah. And the sense I've got from your lecture is to acknowledge all that, but mm. to move the discussion um, to, this, um, to this sense of the creation of, of place within room space for, for the, the people involved. And I think one illustration for me of the shift that probably goes on within the work um, of the shift from a symbol to where you've taken us yeah. is that in the very first drawing there's um, of May the 1st, there's yeah. a little bird coming out of yeah. the side of it. Yeah, and if you keep looking... Look, almost, sorry? It's like a Pegasus horse. That's right, yeah. a Pegasus horse. And, yeah. um, and I wonder where it went to in the rest of the... Um, in all the other states. And yeah. over on the right, you can see it taking the form of a little bird. And in the very yeah. last state, it appears as a, as a kind of bird, but sort of buried. So there's a yes, narrative yes. of the disappearance of that kind of symbolism, and I think you've really brought that out beautifully. My question, though, is it's framed by your argument about um, being in rooms and being in, in spaces. And my question really is, uh, and you use the phrase bourgeois space or, you know, bourgeois. Yeah. But most of the actual figures he paints are not bourgeois people. Yeah. Um, so whose rooms are they? Whose <laughs> space? And, yes. you know... Who, yeah. How does that work in this? Case? Yeah, no, it's a great uh, question, and you know, we'd, it would take too long to uh, answer it, Terry. In a way, this is what the book's about—the whole book. Um, <laughs> and the best I can do to sort of, you know, the, the, the best I can do is this, right? That I, I take very seriously that Cubism is, um, for me, the last great moment of a 19th century bohemian tradition, you know, um, the, the last great moment for me. And of, of course, Bohemia held, held the bourgeois world in contempt. Or, and well, it didn't, it didn't. Um, but, you know, a certain Bohemia had a hostile, it was determined to a pâté le bourgeois and so on. Um, but, I mean, I think it lived, I think the Bohemian, the pathos and strength of uh, French bohemian culture was that it lived in a, a, a symbiosis with the bourgeois world that it lived on the margins of. And that, uh, you know, so this is in a way my argument, which is, you know, it's going to actually upset people because I do believe that Cubism, most profoundly Cubism, is backward-looking, nostalgic, revivalist. It's deeply, deeply still hanging on to a, to a kind of uh, Walter Benjaminian view of the interior. The interior is the real for us, the form of individuality, the form of pleasure, the form of real being in the world. Um, uh, uh, and... 
So, you know, so that's the argument really, right? You know, of course, full of unease and full of cheek and derision, right, about bourgeois, um, you know, the usual bourgeois over-comfort and unctuousness um, and, you know, uh, coziness, right? But... Uh, but it's a but it's a sort of it's a war with a culture that it knows deeply from within, right? And whose forms it's perpetuating, even as it plays with them. Um, and and that's what sort of lies behind, you know. That, that I, I'm sure, I'm sure you've got this. That 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 in the end is what for me makes Guernica the 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 astonishing achievement that it is, right? That he's, you know, that he's really now imagining a world that doesn't have those parameters, in which those parameters are breaking apart. And it's enormously difficult for him to do so, and I think he does it. Thank you. We may just be able to take the two questions that are currently at the mic. So can I start over there and then come to you? Um, as you've talked about before, Gernica has a rich history of influencing other forms of art, um, yes. including dance. Um, yeah. Yeah. A quick, but please answer this quickly. I don't want to take up much time. Um, but what aspects of the painting um, do you believe an artist must remain loyal to mm. when trying to recreate that same wrenching out mm. of suffering um, within yeah. dance or other art forms? Yeah. I think that's a great question, and you know, I mean, actually, we'd sort of have to have a proper conversation about it. Um, and I, you know, it, it's also, by the way, a sort of a bit of a counter argument to mine would be, well, okay, you're so much insisting that for Picasso, what counts is the overall spatial imagining, but but notice that the amazing reworkings of Guernica that I showed you at the beginning, you know, are, are usually extracts. They're mobilizing, you know, particular episodes and particular figures, and, um, uh, and they're doing so with, you know, with great aplomb. I think my answer to that would be, well, yes, I think these, I think the figures and the episodes are extractable because in the end, for Picasso, when Picasso, in making the whole, in imagining the spatial totality, he brings to a conclusion the particular individual realizations. So perhaps a brief, brief answer to you is, look, those artists who go back to Guernica and think that there's something still to be done with it are probably always most deeply attracted by its bodiliness, right? The sort of feeling that pain is incarnate, that these are the forms in which the fact that bombing is agony, right? That death is agony, and that instantaneous death is some kind of special human obscenity, right? In which you have no time for death, right? Death, just human smoke, right? As uh, Nicholson Baker phrase to de describe you know the mid 20th century um, that it's that aspect of, uh, of Guernica that sort of seems to go on living and go on being usable 
like to thank you for the most illuminating expose of Guernica. Thank you. And um, I just had a few thoughts. Uh, one is this, the idea of victim and witness that exists in the painting, and, uh, and your thoughts about uh, the architectural space, internal and external. Mm. And um, I've noticed the two figures in particular, the one holding the lantern, yeah. that as you commented on earlier, squeezing out of, out of a shape or out of a window, yeah. is suddenly thrust out with a lantern, exposing and witnessing the mass destruction and agony before her or mm. him, uh, with the witness below her uh, sort of traversing through um, a vertical as if yeah. coming out of a chamber, both those figures are witnesses yeah. and the lantern is the fulcrum of the triangle of a ray of light that uh, exposes the agony. Yeah. Um, so just yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. if that's... No, I think that's right. And actually it, it is very extraordinary, isn't it, what's happening to the stumbling woman no one can ever quite be sure whether she's sort of stumbling through a door uh, from, you know, from, from somewhere else. Do you want me to tell you a kind of uh, scabrous Picasso story? But it, it, maybe it's a good way to end because one doesn't want... See, this is the paradox of Picasso is that this is such an intense and uh, absolutely serious painting, but... Um, it's dealing, it, it also has a kind of feeling of um, caricature to it, doesn't it? You know, that, right? There's some, a strange, controlled, caricatural element. And on one occasion when he was uh, visited painting it, shall I tell this? Yes, why not? Uh, you know, um, uh, somebody or other said to him, so what's this woman doing? And he said, well, what happens when bombing, bombs fall? People are caught napping. And he went next door and came back with a toilet roll sort of billowing. He said, that's where she's coming from. <laughs> kind of, you know, a crazy, a typical Picasso story, right? Sort of, you know, trying to, do, in a way, trying to, I think that might be sort of somehow or other almost trying to mislead his visitors, you know, about how just how tough and difficult and deadly earnest it all was. Yeah. That's a very uh, nice place to end with because you've led us so beautifully through the complexities. Can we thank TJ Clark again? Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you all very much for coming. <laughs>